0: Hello there, and welcome to Sarah's Bookshelf. That's me, Sarah, and I am so excited to have you here with me. This is a podcast where I share my love of literature and storytelling with you. And together, we get to read some of the world's best stories. So let's get started. Today we are finishing the epic poem Beowulf. If you haven't listened to the last two weeks' episodes, I recommend you start there. If you'd like to follow along, I am reading from the translation written by Seamus Heaney. Just a quick disclaimer before I begin. Lots of the names in these stories are unfamiliar to me, and can be quite hard to pronounce. I have done my best to find the correct pronunciations, but I know it is far from perfect. So I'd like to apologize in advance for any names I might butcher. If anyone listening knows how to pronounce some of the names better than I do, there's an email in the show notes, and I'd love to hear from you. Beowulf, Part 3 A lot was to happen in later days in the fury of battle. Hyalak fell, and the shelter of Hedrard's shield proved useless against the fierce aggression of the Shilflings. Against the fierce aggression of the Shilfings, ruthless swordsmen, seasoned campaigners, they came against him and his conquering nation with cruel force, cut him down, so that afterwards the wide kingdom reverted to Beowulf. He ruled it well, for fifty winters grew old and wise as warden of the land, until one began to dominate the dark, a dragon on the prowl, from the steep vaults of a stone-roofed barrow where he guarded a horde there was a hidden passage unknown to men but someone managed to enter by it and interfere with the heathen trove he had handled and removed a gem-studded goblet it gained him nothing though with a thief's wiles he had outwitted the sleeping dragon that drove him into rage as the people of that country would soon discover The intruder who broached the dragon's treasure and moved him to wrath had never meant to. It was desperation on the part of a slave, fleeing the heavy hand of some master, guilt-ridden and on the run, going to the ground. But he soon began to shake with terror in shock. The wretch panicked and ran away with the precious metalwork. There were many other heirlooms heaped inside the earth house, because long ago, with deliberate care, "'somebody now forgotten had buried the riches of a high-born race in this ancient cache. "'Death had come and taken them all in times gone by, "'and the only one left to tell their tale, the last of their line, "'could look forward to nothing but the same fate for himself. "'He foresaw that his joy in the treasure would be brief. "'A newly constructed barrow stood waiting on a wide headland close to the waves, "'its entryway secured.' Into it, the keeper of the hoard, had carried all the goods and golden ware worth preserving. His words were few. Now, earth, hold what earls once held, and heroes can no more. It was mined from you first by honorable men. My own people have been ruined in war. One by one they went down to death, looked their last on sweet life in the hall. I am left with nobody to bear a sword or burnish plated goblets. Put a sheen on the cup. The companies have departed. The hard helmet, tasped with gold, will be stripped of its hoops, and the helmet-shiner who should polish the metal of the war mask sleeps. The coat of mail that came through all fights, through shield collapse and cut of sword, decays with the warrior. Now may webbed mail range far and wide on a warlord's back, beside his mustard troops. No trembling harp, no tuned timber, no tumbling hawk swerving through the hall, no swift horse pawning the courtyard. Pillage and slaughter have emptied the earth of entire peoples. And so he mourned as he moved about the world, deserted and alone, lamenting his unhappiness, day and night, until death's flood brimmed up in his heart. Then an old harrower of the dark happened to find the hoard open. The burning one who hunts out barrows, the slick-skinned dragon threatening the night sky with streamers of fire. People on the farms are in dread of him. He is driven to hunt out hordes underground to guard heathen gold through age-long vigils, though to little avail. For three centuries, this scourge of the people had stood guard on that stoutly protected underground treasury until the intruder unleashed its fury he hurried to his lord with the gold-plated cup and made his plea to be reinstated then the vault was rifled the ring hoard robbed and the wretched man had his request granted his master gazed on that find from the past for the first time when the dragon awoke trouble flared again He rippled down the rock, writhing with anger, when he saw the footprints of the prowler who had stolen too close to his dreaming head. So may a man, not marked by fate, easily escape exile and woe by the grace of God. The horde guardian scorched the ground as he scoured and hunted for the trespasser who had troubled his sleep. Hot and savage, he kept circling and circling the outside of the mound. No man appeared in that desert waste, but he worked himself up by imagining battle. Then back in he'd go, in search of the cup, only to discover signs that someone had stumbled upon the golden treasures. The guardian of the mound, the horde-watcher, waited for the gloaming with fierce impatience. His pent-up fury at the loss of the vessel made him long to hit back and lash out in flames. Then, to his delight, the day waned and he could wait no longer behind the hall, but hurtled forth in a fiery blaze. The first to suffer were the people on the land, but before long it was their treasure-giver who would come to grief. The dragon began to belch out flames and burn bright homesteads. There was a hot glow that scared everyone, for the vile sky-winger would leave nothing alive in his wake. Everywhere the havoc he wrought was in evidence. Far and near the Geet nation bore the brunt of his brutal assaults and virulent hate. Then back to the horde he would dart before daybreak to hide in his den. He had singed the land, swathed it in flame, in fire and burning, and now he felt secure in the vaults of his burrow. But his trust was unavailing. Then Beowulf was given bad news, a hard truth. His own home, the best of buildings, had been burnt to a cinder, the throne room of the Geats. It threw the hero into deep anguish and darkened his mood. The wise man thought he must have thwarted ancient ordinance of the Eternal Lord, broken his commandment. His mind was in turmoil. Unaccustomed anxiety and gloom confused his brain. The fire dragon had razed the coastal region and reduced forts and earthworks to dust and ashes. So the war king planned and plotted his revenge. The warrior's protector, Prince of the Hall Troop, ordered a marvellous all-iron shield from his smithy works. He well knew that linden boards would let him down and timber burn. After many trials, he was destined to face the end of his days in this mortal world, as was the dragon. For all his leasehold on the treasure. Yet the Prince of the Rings was too proud To line up with a large army against the Sky Plague. He had scant regard for the dragon as a threat. No dread at all of its courage or strength, For he had kept going often in the past Through perils and ordeals of every sort, After he had purged Hrothgar's hall, Triumphed in Herot and beaten Grendel. He outgrappled the monster and his evil kin. One of his cruelest hand-to-hand encounters had happened when Hyalak, king of the Geats, was killed in Friesland. The people's friend and lord, Hrethel's son, slaked a sword's blade's thirst for blood. But Beowulf's prodigious gifts as a swimmer guaranteed his safety. He arrived at the shore shouldering thirty battle dresses, the booty he had won. There was little for the hetware to be happy about as they shielded their faces and fighting on the ground began in earnest. With Beowulf against them, few could hope to return home. Across the wide sea, desolate and alone, the son of Edgethau swam back to his people, where Hyde offered him throne and authority as lord of the Ring Horde. With Hylac dead, she had no belief in her son's ability to defend their homeland against foreign invaders. Yet there was no way the weakened nation could get Beowulf to give in and agree to be elevated over Herdred As his lord or to undertake the office of kingship but he did provide support for the prince honored and minded him until he matured as the ruler of Geatland then over sea roads exiles arrived sons of Othir they had rebelled against the best of all the sea kings in Sweden the one who held sway in the Shalfing nation the renowned prince lord of the mead hall that marked the end of for son His hospitality was mortally rewarded with wounds from a sword. Herdred lay slaughtered and Onella returned to the land of Sweden, leaving Beowulf to ascend the throne, to sit in majesty and rule over the Geats. He was a good king. In days to come, he contrived to avenge the fall of his prince. He befriended Egil's when Egils was friendless, aiding his cause with weapons and warriors over the wide sea, sending him men. The feud was settled on a comforting campaign when he killed Onella. And so the son of Egtheow had survived every extreme, excelling himself in daring and in danger until the day arrived when he had to come face to face with the dragon. The lord of the Geats took eleven comrades and went in a rage. By then he had discovered the cause of the affliction being visited on the people. The precious cup had come to him from the hand of the finder, the one who had started all this strife, and was now added as a thirteenth to their number. They press-ganged and compelled this poor creature to be their guide. Against his will he led them to the earth vault he alone knew, an underground barrow near the sea billows and heaving waves, heaped inside with exquisite metalwork. The one who stood guard was dangerous and watchful. Warden of that trove, buried under earth. No easy bargain would be made in that place by any man. The veteran king sat down on the clifftop. He wished good luck to the Geats who had shared his hearth and his gold. He was sad at heart, unsettled yet ready, sensing his own death. His fate hovered near, unknowable but certain. It would soon claim his coffered soul, part life from limb. Before long, the prince's spirit would spin free from his body. Beowulf, son of Ejtiaw, spoke. Many a skirmish I survived when I was young, and many times of war. I remember them well. At seven, I was fostered out by my father, left in the charge of my people's lord. King Hrathel kept me and took care of me, was open-handed, behaved like a kinsman. While I was his ward, he treated me no worse as a wean about the place than one of his own boys, Haerbeld or Hathian, or my own Hyalak. While I was his ward, he treated me no worse as a wean about the place than one of his own boys, Haerbeld and Haithian, or my own Hyalak. For the eldest, hair an unexpected deathbed was lain out. Through a brother's doing. When Haithson bent his horn-tipped bow and loosed the arrow that destroyed his life, he shot wide and buried a shaft in the flesh and blood of his own brother. That offence was beyond redress, a wrong footing of the heart's affections, for who could avenge the prince's life or pay his death price? It was like the... It was like the misery felt by an old man who has lived to see his son's body swing on the gallows. He begins to keen and weep for this boy, watching the raven gloat where he hangs. He can be of no help. The wisdom of age is worthless to him. Morning after morning he wakes to remember that his child is gone. He has no interest in living on until another heir is born in the hall. Now that his firstborn has entered death's dominion forever he gazes sorrowfully at his son's dwelling the banquet hall bereft of all delight the wind swept hearthstone the horsemen are sleeping the warriors underground what was is no more no tunes from the harp no cheer raised in the yard alone with his longing he lies down on his bed and sings a lament everything seems too large the steadings and the fields such was the feeling of loss endured by the lord of the geats after Herbeld's death he was hopelessly placed to set to rights the wrong committed could not punish the killer in accordance of the law of the blood feud although he felt no love for him heart sore wearied he turned away from life's joys chose god's light and departed leaving buildings and lands to his sons as a man of substance will. Then over the wide seas, Swedes and Geats battled and feuded, fought without quarter. Hostilities broke out when Hrethel died. Ongenthiau's sons were unrelenting, refusing to make peace, campaigning violently from coast to coast, constantly setting up terrible ambushes around Trenchill. My own kith and kin avenged these evil events, as everybody knows. But the price was high. One of them paid with his life. Haithson, lord of the Geats, met his fate there and fell in battle. Then, as I have heard, Hyalak's sword was raised in the morning against Ungenthjau. His brother's killer. When Eofor cleft the old Swede's helmet, halved it open, he fell, death pale. His feud, calloused hand could not stave off the stroke. The treasure that Hylac lavished on me, I paid for as I fought, as fortune allowed me, with my glittering sword. He gave me land and the security land brings, so he had no call to go looking for some lesser champion, some mercenary among the Griftas or the Spear Danes or the men of Sweden. I marched ahead of him, always there at the front of the line, and I shall fight like that for as long as I live, as long as this sword shall last, which has stood me in good stead, late and soon, ever since I killed Raven the Frank, in front of the two armies. He brought back no looted breastplate to the Frisian king, but fell in battle, their standard-bearer, high-born and brave. No sword blade sent him to his death. My bare hand stilled his heartbeats and wrecked the bone house. Now blade and hand, sword and sword stroke will assay the horde. Beowulf spoke, made a formal boast for the last time. I risked my life often when I was young. Now I am old. But as king of this people, I shall pursue this fight for the glory of winning. If the evil one will only abandon his earth fort and face me in the open. Then he addressed each dear companion one final time, those fighters in their helmets, resolute and high-born. I would rather not use a weapon if I knew another way to grapple with the dragon and make good my boast as I did against Grendel in days gone by. But I shall be meeting molten venom in the fire he breathes, so I go forth in mail shirt and shield. I won't shift a foot when I meet the cave guard. What occurs on the wall between the two of us will turn out as fate. Overseer of men decides. I am resolved. I scorn further words against this sky-born foe. Men-at-arms, remain here on the barrow, safe in your armor to see which one of us is better in the end at bearing wounds in a deadly fray. This fight is not yours, nor is it up to any man except me to measure his strength against the monster or to prove his worth." I shall win the gold by my courage, or else mortal combat, doom of battle, will bear your lord away. Then he drew himself up beside his shield. The fabled warrior in his war shirt and helmet trusted in his own strength entirely and went under the crag. No coward path. Hard by the rock face that hale veteran, a good man who had gone repeatedly into combat and danger and come through saw a stone arch and a gushing stream that burst from the barrow, blazing and wafting a deadly heat. It would be hard to survive unscathed near the horde, to hold firm against the dragon in those flaming depths. Then he gave a shout. The lord of the Geats unburdened his breast and broke out in a storm of anger. Under grey stone his voice challenged and resounded clearly. Heat was ignited. The horde guard recognized a human voice. The time was over for peace and parleying. Pouring forth in a hot battle fume, the breath of the monster burst from the rock. There was a rumble underground. Down there in the barrow, Beowulf the warrior lifted his shield. The outlandish thing writhed and convulsed and viciously turned to the king, whose keen-edged sword and heirloom inherited by ancient right was already in his hand roused to a fury each antagonist struck terror in the other unyielding the lord of his people loomed by his tall shield sure of his ground while the serpent looped and unleashed itself swaddled in flames it came gliding and flexing and racing toward its fate yet his shield defended the renowned leader's life and limb for a shorter time than he meant it to that final day was the first time when Beowulf fought and fate denied him glory in battle. So the king of the Geats raised his hand and struck hard at the enameled scales, but hardly cut through. The blade flashed and slashed, yet the blow was far less powerful than the hard-pressed king had need of at the moment. The horde-keeper went into a spasm and spouted deadly flames. When he felt the stroke, battle-fire billowed and spewed. Beowulf was foiled of a glorious victory. The glittering sword, infallible before that day, failed when he unsheathed it, as it never should have. For the son of Egtheow, it was no easy thing to have to give ground like that and go unwillingly to inhabit another home in a place beyond. So every man must yield the leashhold of his days. Before long the fierce contenders clashed again, The horde guard took heart, inhaled and swelled up and got a new wind. He who had once ruled was furled in fire and had to face the worst. No help or backing was to be had then from his high-born comrades. That hand-picked troop broke ranks and ran for their lives to the safety of the wood. But within one heart sorrow welled up. In a man of worth the claims of kinship cannot be denied. His name was Wiglaf. A son of Weostans, a well-regarded Chalfing warrior, related to Elfir. When he saw his lord tormented by the heat of his scalding helmet, he remembered the bountiful gifts bestowed on him, how well he lived among the Wegmundings, the freehold he inherited from his father before him. He could not hold back. One hand brandished the yellow-timbered shield, the other drew his sword. An ancient blade that was said to have belonged to Einmund, the son of Othir, the one Weostan had slain when he was in exile without friends. He carried the arms to the victim's kinfolk, the burnished helmet, the webbed chainmail, and that relic of the giants. But Onella returned the weapons to him, rewarded Weostan with Egmund's war gear, the fact that Egmund was his brother's son. Wealstan kept the war gear for a lifetime, the sword and the mail shirt until it was the son's turn to follow his father and perform his part. Then in old age at the end of his days, among the weather geats, he bequeathed to Wiglaf innumerable weapons. And now the youth was to enter the line of battle with his lord, his first time to be tested as a fighter. His spirit did not break, and the ancestral blade would keep its edge as the dragon discovered as soon as they came together in combat. Sad at heart, addressing his companions, Wiglaf spoke wise and fluent words. I remember that time when the mead was flowing, how we pledged loyalty to our lord in the hall, promised our ringgiver we would be worth our price. Make good the gift of the war-gear, those swords and helmets, as and when his need required it. He picked us out from the army deliberately, honoured us and judged us fit for his action, made me these lavish gifts, and all because he considered us the best of his arms-bearing thanes. And now, although he wanted this challenge to be the one he'd face by himself alone, the shepherd of our land, a man unequalled in the quest for glory, and a name for daring, Now the day has come when this Lord we serve needs sound men to give him their support. Let us go to him. Help our leader through the hot flame and dread of the fire. As God is my witness, I would rather my body were robbed in the same burning blaze as my gold giver's body than go back home bearing arms. That is unthinkable unless we have first slain the foe and defended the life of the Prince of the Weathergeats. I well know that things he has done for us deserve better. Should he alone be left exposed to fall in battle? We must bond together, shield and helmet, mail, shirt and sword. Then he waited the dangerous reek and went under arms to his lord, saying only, Go on, dear Beowulf, do everything you said you would when you were still young and vowed you would never let your name and fame be dimmed while you lived. Your deeds are famous, so stay resolute, my lord. Defend your life now with the whole of your strength. I shall stand by you. After these words, a wildness rose in the dragon again and drove it to attack, heaving up fire, hunting for enemies. The humans it loathed. Flames lapped the shield, charred it to the boss, and the body armor on the young warrior was useless to him. But Wiglaf did well under the wide rim Beowulf shared with him once his own had shattered in sparks and ashes. Inspired again by the thought of glory, the war king threw his whole strength behind a sword stroke and connected with the skull. And Negling snapped. Beowulf's ancient iron-gray sword let him down in the fight. It was never his fortune to be helped in combat by the cutting edge of weapons made of iron. When he yielded a sword, no matter how blooded and hard-edged the blade, his hand was too strong. The stroke he dealt, I have heard, would ruin it. He could reap no advantage. Then the bane of that people, the fire-breathing dragon, was mad to attack for a third time. When a chance came, he caught the hero in a rush of flame and clamped sharp fangs onto his neck. Beowulf's body ran wet with his lifeblood it came welling out. Next thing, they say, the noble son of Weostan saw the king in danger at his side and displayed his inborn bravery and strength. He left the head alone, but his fighting hand was burned when he came to his kinsman's aid. He lunged at the enemy lower down so that his decorated sword sank into its belly and the flames grew weaker. Once again, the king gathered his strength and drew a stabbing knife he carried on his belt, sharpened for battle. He stuck it deep into the dragon's flank. Beowulf dealt it a deadly wound. They had killed the enemy. Courage quelled his life. That pair of kinsmen, partners in nobility, had destroyed the foe. So every man should act. Be at hand when needed, but now, for the king, this would be the last of his many labours and triumphs in the world. Then the wound dealt by the ground burner earlier began to scald and swell. Beowulf discovered deadly poison suppurating inside him, surges of nausea, and so, in his wisdom, the prince realized his state and struggled towards a seat on the rampart. He steadied his gaze on the gigantic stones, saw how the earthwork was braced with arches built over columns. And now that thane, unequalled for goodness, with his own hands washed his lord's wounds, swabbed the weary prince with water, bathed him clean, and unbuckled his helmet. Beowulf spoke in spite of his wounds mortal wounds he still spoke for he knew well his days in the world had been lived out to the end his allotted time was drawing to a close death was very near now this is the time when i would have wanted to bestow this armor on my own son had it been my fortune to have fathered an heir and live on in his flesh for 50 years i ruled this nation No king of any neighboring clan would dare to face me with troops. None had the power to intimidate me. I took what came, cared for, and stood by things in my keeping, never fomented quarrels, never swore to a lie. All this consoles me. Doomed as I am and sickening for death because of my right way, the ruler of mankind need never blame me when the breath leaves my body for murder of kinsmen. Go now quickly, dearest Wiglaf. Under the grey stone where the dragon is laid out, lost to his treasure. Hurry to feast your eyes on the hoard. Away you go. I want to examine the ancient gold. Gaze my fill on those garnered jewels. My going will be easier for having seen the treasure. A less troubled letting go of the life and lordship I have long maintained. And so I have heard. The son of Weostan quickly obeyed the command of his languishing, war-weary lord. He went in his chainmail under the rock-piled roof of the barrow, exulting in his triumph, and saw beyond the seat a treasure trove of astonishing richness. Wall hangings that were a wonder to behold. Glittering gold spread across the ground, the old dawn-scorching serpent's den, packed with goblets and vessels of the past, tarnished and corroding. Rusty helmets all eaten away, armbands everywhere, artfully wrought. How easily treasure buried in the ground, gold hidden, however skillfully can escape from any man. And he saw to a standard, entirely of gold, hanging high over the hoard, a masterpiece of filigree. It glowed with light, so he could make out the ground at his feet and inspect the valuables. Of the dragon there was no remaining sign. The sword had dispatched him. Then the story goes... A certain man plundered the horde in the immemorial how, filled his arms with flagons and plates, anything he wanted, and took the standard also, most brilliant of banners. Already the blade of the old king's sharp killing sword had done its worst. The one who had for long minded the horde hovering over gold, unleashing fire, surging forth, midnight after midnight, had been mown down. Wiglaf went quickly, keen to get back, excited by the treasure. Anxiety weighed on his brave heart. He was hoping he would find the leader of the Geats alive where he had left him, helpless earlier on the ground. So he came to the place, carrying the treasure, and found his lord bleeding profusely, his life at an end. Again he began to swab his body. The beginnings of an utterance broke out from the king's breastcage. The old lord gazed sadly at the gold. To the everlasting lord of all, to the king of glory, I give thanks that I beheld this treasure here in front of me, that I have been allowed to leave my people so well endowed on the day I die. Now that I have bartered my last breath to own this fortune, it is up to you to look after their needs. I can hold out no longer. Order my troop to construct a barrow on a headland on the coast after my pyre has cooled. It will loom in the horizon at Hronisness and be a reminder among my people so that in coming times crews under sail will call it Beowulf's Barrow as they steer ships across the wide and shrouded waters. Then the king, in his great-heartedness, unclasped the collar of gold from around his neck and gave it to the young Thane telling him to use it and the war shirt and the gilded helmet well. You are the last of us, the only one left of the Wegmundings. Fate swept us away, sent my whole brave high-born clan to their final doom. Now I must follow them. That was the warrior's last word. He had no more to confide. The furious heat of the pyre would assail him his soul fled from his breast to its destined place among the steadfast ones. It was hard then on the young hero, having to watch the one he held so dear there on the ground, going through his death agony. The dragon from under earth, his nightmarish destroyer, lay destroyed as well, utterly without life. No longer would his snake folds ply themselves to safeguard hidden gold. Hard-edged blades hammered out and keenly filed had finished him so that the sky-roamer lay there rigid, brought low beside the treasure lodge. Never again would he glitter and glide and show himself off in the midnight air, exulting in his riches. He fell to earth through the battle-strength in Beowulf's arm. There were few, indeed, as far as I have heard, big and brave as they may have been, few who would have held out if they had had to face the outpourings of that poison breather, or gone foraging on the ring-hall floor, and found the deep barrow-dweller on guard and awake. The treasure had been won, bought and paid for by Beowulf's death. Both had reached the end of the road, through the life they had been lent. Before long the battle dodgers abandoned the wood, the ones who had let down their lord earlier, the tail turners, ten of them together. When he had needed them the most, they had made off. Now they were ashamed and came behind shields in their battle outfits to where the old man lay. They watched Wiglaf sitting worn out, a comrade shoulder to shoulder with his lord, trying in vain to bring him round with water. Much as he wanted to, there was no way he could preserve his lord's life on earth or alter, in the least, the Almighty's will. What God judged right would rule what happened to every man, as it does to this day. Then a stern rebuke was bound to come from the young warrior to the ones who had been cowards. Wiglaf, son of Weosin spoke, disdainfully and in disappointment. Anyone ready to admit the truth will surely realize the lord of men who showered you with gifts and gave you the armor you are standing in. When he would distribute helmets and mail shirts to men on the mead benches, a prince treating his thanes in hall, to the best he could find, far or near, was throwing weapons uselessly away. It would be a sad waste when the war broke out. Beowulf had little cause to brag about his armed guard. Yet God who ordains, who wins or loses, allowed him to strike with his own blade when bravery was needed. There was little I could do to protect his life in the heat of the fray, yet I found new strength welling up when I went to help him. Then my sword connected and the deadly assaults of our foe grew weaker. The fire coursed less strongly from his head. But when the worst happened, too few rallied around the prince." So it is goodbye now to all you know and love on your home ground, the open-handedness, the giving of war swords. Every one of you with freeholds of land, our whole nation, will be dispossessed once princes from beyond get tidings of how you turned and fled and disgraced yourselves. A warrior will sooner die than live a life of shame. Then he ordered the outcome of the fight to be reported to those camped on the ridge, that crowd of retainers who had sat all morning, sad at heart, shield-bearers wondering about the man they loved. Would this day be his last, or would he return? He told the truth and did not balk, the rider who bore news to the clifftop. He addressed them all, Now the people's pride and love, the lord of the Geats, is laid on his deathbed. Brought down by the dragon's attack. Beside him lies the bane of his life, dead from knife wounds. There was no way Beowulf could manage to get the better of the monster with his sword. Wiglaf sits at Beowulf's side, the son of Weostan, the living warrior watching by the dead. Keeping weary vigil, holding awake for the loved and the loathed. Now war is looming over our nation, soon it will be known to Franks and Frisians far and wide that the king is gone. Hostility has been great among the Franks since Hyalac sailed forth at the head of a war fleet into Friesland. There the hetware harried and attacked and overwhelmed him with great odds. The leader in his war gear was laid low, fell amongst followers, that lord did not favor his company with spoils the Merovingian king has been an enemy to us ever since. Nor do I expect peace of pact-keeping of any sort from the Swedes. Remember, at Raven's Wood, Ongenthiau slaughtered Hathson, Hrathal's son, when the Geat people, in their arrogance, first attacked the fierce Shalfings. The return blow was quickly struck by Othir's father. Old and terrible, he felled the sea king and saved his own aged wife, the mother of Onella and of Othir, bereft of her gold rings then he kept hard on the heels of the foe and drove them leaderless lucky to get away in a desperate route to ravenswood his army surrounded the weary remnant where they nursed their wounds all through the night he howled threats at those huddled survivors promises to axe their bodies open when dawn broke dangle them from gallows to feed the birds but at first light when their spirits were lowest relief arrived They heard the sound of Hylaac's horn, his trumpet calling as he came to find them, the hero in pursuit at hand with troops. The bloody swathe that Swedes and Geats cut through each other was everywhere. No one could miss their murderous feuding. Then the old man made his move, pulled back, barred his people in. Ngenthiau withdrew to higher ground. Hyalak's pride and prowess as a fighter were known to the earl. He had no confidence that he could hold out against that horde of seamen. Defend wife and the ones he loved from the shock of the attack. He retreated for shelter behind the earth wall. Then Hyalak swooped on the Swedes at bay, his banners swarmed into their refuge. The Geet forces drove forward to destroy the camp. There in his grey hairs on Genthiau was cornered, ringed around with swords. And it came to pass that the king's fate was in Eofor's hands, and in his alone. Wolf, son of Wanred, went for him in anger, split him open so that blood came spurting from under his hair. The old hero still did not flinch, but parried fast, hit back with a harder stroke. The king turned and took him on, then Wanred's son, the brave Wolf, could land no blow against the aged lord. Um, Genthiao divided his helmet so that he buckled and bowed his bloodied head and dropped to the ground. But his doom held off. Though he was cut deep, he recovered again. With his brother down, the undaunted Éophore, Hyalax Thane, hefted his sword and smashed murderously at the massive helmet past the lifted shield. And the king collapsed. The shepherd of people was sheared of life. Many then hurried to help Wolf, bandaged and lifted him now that they were left masters of the blood-soaked battleground. One warrior stripped the other, looted on Genthiau's ironmail coat, his hard sword hilt, his helmet too, and carried the graith to King Hylak. He accepted the prize, promised fairly that reward would come, and kept his word. For their bravery in action when they arrived home, Eophor and Wolf were overloaded by Hrethel's son, Hyalak the Geet, with gifts of land and linked rings that were worth a fortune. They had won glory, so there was no gainsaying his generosity. And he gave Eophor his only daughter to bide him at home with him and an honor and a bond. So this bad blood between us and the Swedes, this vicious feud, I am convinced, is bound to revive. They will cross our borders and attack in force once they find out that Beowulf is dead. In days gone by, when our warriors fell and we were undefended, he kept our coffers and our kingdoms safe. He worked for the people, but as well as that, he behaved like a hero. We must hurry now to take a last look at the king and launch him. Lord and lavisher of rings on the funeral road. His royal pyre will melt no small amount of gold. Heaped there in the hoard, it was bought at heavy cost. And that pile of rings he paid for at the end with his own life will go up in flames, be furled in fire, treasure no follower will wear in his memory. Nor lovely woman link and attach as a torque around her neck. But often, repeatedly, in the path of exile, they shall walk bereft, bowed under woe. Now that their leader's laugh is silenced, high spirits quenched. Many a spear, dawn cold to the touch, will be taken down and waved on high. The swept harp won't waken warriors, but the raven winging darkly over the doomed will have news. Tidings of the eagle of how he hoked and ate, how the wolf and he made short work of the dead. Such was the drift of the dire report that gallant man delivered. He got little wrong in what he told and predicted. The whole troop rose in tears, then took their way to the uncanny scene under Ernenes. There, on the sand where his soul had left him, they found him at rest, their ring-giver from days gone by. The great man had breathed his last. Beowulf the king had indeed met with a marvellous death. But what they saw first was far stranger. The serpent on the ground, gruesome and vile, lying facing him. The fire dragon was scarcely burnt, scorched all colors. From head to tail, his entire length was 50 feet. He had shimmered forth on the night air once, then winged back down to his den. But death owned him now. He would never enter his earth gallery again. Beside him stood pitchers and piled-up dishes, silent flagons, precious swords, eaten through with rust, rang as they had been while they waited their thousand winters underground. That huge cash, gold inherited from an ancient race, was under a spell, which meant no one was ever permitted to enter the king hall unless God himself, mankind's keeper, true king of triumphs, allowed some person pleasing him and in his eyes worthy to open the hoard. What came about brought to nothing the hopes of the one who had wrongly hidden riches under the rock face. First the dragon slew that man among men, who in turn made fierce amends and settled the feud. Famous for his deeds a warrior may be, but it remains a mystery where his life will end, when he may no longer dwell in the mead hall among his own. So it was with Beowulf when he faced the cruelty and cunning of the mound-guard. He himself was ignorant of how his departure from the world would happen. The high-born chiefs who had buried the treasure declared it until doomsday, so accursed that whoever robbed it would be guilty of wrong and grimly punished for their transgression, hasped in hell-bonds and heathen shrines. Yet Beowulf's gaze at the gold treasure when he first saw it had not been selfish. Wiglaf, son of Weostan, spoke. Often when one man follows his own will, many are hurt. This happened to us. Nothing we advised could ever convince the prince we loved, our land's guardian, not to vex the custodian of the gold. Let him lie where he was long accustomed, lurk there under the earth until the end of the world. He held to his high destiny. The hoard is laid bare, but at a grave cost. It was too cruel a fate that forced the king to that encounter. I have been inside and seen everything amassed in the vault. I managed to enter, although no great welcome awaited me under the earth wall. I quickly gathered up a huge pile of the priceless treasures, hand-picked from the hoard, and carried them here where the king could see them. He was still himself, alive, aware, and in spite of his weakness, he had many requests. He wanted me to greet you and order the building of a barrow that would crown the spite of his pyre, serve as his memorial, in a commanding position since all men to have lived and thrived and lorded it on earth. His worth and due as a warrior were the greatest. Now let us again go quickly and feast our eyes on that amazing fortune heaped under the wall. I will show the way and take you close to those coffers packed with rings and bars of gold. Let a buyer be made and got ready quickly when we come out, and let us bring the body of our Lord, the man we loved, to where he will lodge for a long time in the care of the Almighty. Then Weostan's son, stalwart to the end, had orders given to owners of dwellings, many people of importance in the land, to fetch wood from far and wide for the good man's pyre. Now shall flame consume our leader in battle. The blaze darken round him who stood his ground in the steel hall. When the arrow storm shot from bowstrings, pelted from the shield wall, the shaft hit home. Feather-fledged, it finned the barb in flight. Next, the wise son of Weostan called from among the king's thanes a group of seven. He selected the best, and entered with them the eight of their number, under the god-cursed roof. One raised a lighted torch and led the way. No lots were cast for who should loot the hoard, for it was obvious to them that every bit of it lay unprotected within the vault, there for the taking. It was no trouble to hurry to work and haul out the priceless store. They pitched the dragon over the cliff top, let tides flow and backwash take the treasure minder. Then coiled gold was loaded on a cart in great abundance, and the grey-haired leader, the prince of his buyer, borne to Hrannisness. The Geat people built a pyre for Beowulf, stacked and decked it until it stood four square, hung with helmets, heavy war shields, and shining armor, just as he had ordered. Then his warriors laid him in the middle of it, mourning a lord far-famed and beloved. On a height they kindled the hugest of all funeral fires. Fumes of wood smoke billowed darkly up. The blaze roared and drowned out their weeping. Wind died down and flames wrought havoc in the hot bone house, burning it to the core. They were disconsolate and wailed aloud for their lord's decease. A geet woman too sang out in grief, with her hair bound up, she unburdened herself of her worst fears, a wild litany of nightmare and lament. Her nation invaded, enemies on the rampage, bodies in piles, slavery and abasement, heaven swallowed the smoke. Then the Geet people began to construct a mound on a headland, high and imposing, a marker that sailors could see from far away. And in ten days they had done the work. It was their hero's memorial. What remained from fire they housed inside it behind a wall as worthy of him as their workmanship could make it. And they buried torques in the barrow and jewels and a trove of such things as trespassing men had once dared to drag from the hoard. They let the ground keep that ancestral treasure, gold under gravel, gone to earth, as useless to men now as it ever was. Then twelve warriors rode around the tomb, chieftain's sons, champions in battle, all of them distraught, chanting in dirges, mourning his loss as a man and a king. They extolled his heroic exploits and gave thanks for his greatness, which was the proper thing. For a man should praise a prince whom he holds dear and cherish his memory when that moment comes, when he has to be convoyed from his bodily home. So the Geet people, his hearth companions, sorrowed for the Lord who had been laid low. They said that of all the kings upon the earth, he was the man most gracious and fair-minded, kindest to his people, and keenest to win fame. Thank you for indulging in a story with me today. If you enjoyed it, please consider following and rating the podcast. It helps other people find and enjoy the show. If you want to get in touch with me, there's an email in the show notes, and I'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with another wonderful story. Till next time, friends. Till next time, friends. Hi, Beaner. Hi. You want to tell a story with me? Yeah? Yeah. Beowulf, son of Edgetheow, spoke. Men. (laughs) Bean, (laughs) you have to be quiet.